Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, welcome to the physics department, or welcome back in many cases to the physics department. It's uh, very nice to see you all here this afternoon. Um, my name is John Wheater, as some of you probably know, um, and I'm the current head of the department. So what we thought we would uh, do today uh, in this last talk of the afternoon uh, is to give you a little, over, little bit of an overview of what the physics department is like now, uh, and then some slightly more detailed uh, explanation of a couple of the very interesting things which are, which are going on, which will be uh, done by Alan Barr and, and, and Henry Snaith. Okay, so, so uh, what's our mission? What's the physics department about these days? Well, I think it's about the things that it was always been pretty much about. Um, we're after doing high-quality research, high-quality teaching. We aim to be one of the best physics departments in the world, um, and that means that we're judged by the same standards as everybody else who's aiming to be one of the best physics departments in the, in the world. So it's a kind of moving goal. You never get there. You're always doing your best. It's never quite good enough, uh, and you can never relax because science changes remorselessly. Uh, science has changed enormously over the last 30 years. Physics is no exception. And, and in a minute or two, I'll talk about a couple of, couple of examples of, of that. Uh, but the whole aim of the department is to do everything that we do do uh, as well as we possibly can. That's the primary, primary motivation. The people who do it are really quite a lot of them. We have about 470-odd staff at any one time. Um, about 120-odd of those are, are academic staff. Now, those of you who are actually undergraduates here and went through the tutorial system we'll sort of calculate and think, you know, that's far too many academic staff for the number of tutors that I remember in my college. And that's exactly right. Um, only about 60 of these academic staff are actually tutorial fellows in colleges. Uh, the rest are other people who, who, are, are who teach in the department and who, who do research, but they don't do uh, the tutorial fellow job in the college. So the it's like an iceberg. Okay, the department is actually much bigger than it would appear for multiplying up the number of physics fellows in colleges. Um, we have a large number of postdoctoral researchers. These are people who've done their PhDs and their DPhils, and they come here typically to work for a few years, maybe three, maybe five, on uh, particular experiments and particular projects. Uh, and then we have some, uh, some staff who, who are here permanently, who are people like engineers, uh, electronics engineers, mechanical engineers, systems integration engineers, all sorts of things uh, who are absolutely vital to the whole effort of, of participating in large-scale international collaborations and big experiments. Uh, and then we have a very large number of technical and support staff. These are the people who work in the mechanical workshops and so on. And many of them are extremely skilled people and we rely on them uh, to, to help with actually the construction of many of the things that that we, we build here. Alan will tell you later about some of the things that we build in the physics department. So this is an enormous number of people uh, and th there's a correspondingly enormous number of students. There are about 720 undergraduate students at any one time um, and about 300 postgraduate students, uh, people working for PhDs, or sorry, DPhils, I should call them. Um, and uh, you know, that number is as big as it has ever been. These days, people, students and staff come from all over the world. 
I was actually an undergraduate here in, in, in the, towards the end of the 1970s, uh, and I remember very clearly at that time that almost all of the lecturers and almost all of the tutors were English, um, and I mean English, right? Um, these days it's completely different. People come from all over the world. Um, the degrees, since most of you are here, because once upon a time you once did a degree, um, the, the, the structure of the degrees has also changed a bit over the years. Uh, uh, and and these, these days it's possible to do either a three-year or a four-year degree in, in physics. Um, about 45 people do the three-year degree. About 120 a year do the four-year degree. The main difference is that if you want to go on and do research, um, then it, it's really pretty much necessary to do the four-year degree because you only do the sorts of things you need to have as a basis for being a graduate research student in the fourth, fourth year. That's when you start to specialise on, on particular, particular areas of physics. Physics and philosophy continues. It's about the same size as it always has been. A rather small number of people, but it's uh, stable. And about 100 people a year get a DPhil in physics. Um, that's, so that's different, if you were here a long time ago, that's different from how it was then. It's still evolving, so from, from two, the academic year 2015-16, it would actually be possible uh, to take a mathematical physics degree, a four-year mathematical physics degree, and in that degree, you can do the first, you'll be able to do the first three years either in the mathematics department or in the physics department, and then we will be running a common fourth year in mathematical physics. So, uh, that's just being developed at the moment, and the first students will take their mathematical physics finals in 2016. Where are we? Well, it's much the same as it has been for a long time. Uh, I hope you can see this. This is an aerial, uh, aerial photograph of, of the area. Up the top, where it says physics places, is the university parks. And uh, then below it, uh, which is where we are in the middle, is the Clarendon Laboratory. That's got this little purple box around it. Uh, the Clarendon Laboratory, of course, has changed a bit. Uh, this lecture theatre is about 12 years old. Um, and um, a long time ago, before the lecture theatre, this was basically part of the mechanical workshop, and it was a single-storey building on this, on this site. Um, and we were very lucky to be given the funds by Sir Martin Wood, who was the founder of Oxford, Oxford Instruments, to, to construct this lecture theatre, which is uh, basically replaced the Townsend Lecture Theatre, which many of you probably remember. Townsend Lecture Theatre no longer exists. Um, then across the road from the Clarendon Laboratory is the Atmospheric F Physics Building, and we now occupy a chunk of what used to be occupied by Earth Sciences, which is called being named the Robert Hooke Building. And then on the other side of, 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 of Parks Road, uh, we occupy the large 1960s concrete building, which many of you will remember as the Nuclear Physics Laboratory, but which has been now named for a long time after Sir Dennis Wilkinson, um, who was the dynamic individual who got it built. So uh, that's now, now named uh, after him. So Dennis is 90, and uh, so he is celebrating his 90th birthday about, about now. His, uh, a very distinguished scientist, clearly, and uh, we owe him a lot for getting that building built. It's still our largest building. And then next to it, theoretical physics inhabits some of the Keeble Road terraces. So it's basically been like this for quite a long time. Uh, we have grand plans to change it, which I'll tell you about later. Um, 
but, but these, these, are the, these are the places uh, where, where we operate. Some things have changed though. Many of you probably did practicals at the top of the Clarendon Laboratory, undergraduate practicals at the top of the Clarendon Laboratory. Now, now the students do them in the basement of the Dennis Wilkinson building. <laughs> okay. What do we do now? Well, of course we do a huge number of things, but I'd just like to give you a sort of brief uh, uh, sort of overview of the sorts of things that we do now. Um, before we get to the list, one of the things you'll notice about this picture is it's got lots of optical junk on it, it's on an optical table, and, and so was one of the earlier pictures I showed you. And, and that's very characteristic of physics now. Almost everything involves using lasers. Lasers are no longer a, a sort of topic of research in their own right. They've become a standard tool in physics. And they're, us they're usually you know, an intrinsic part of the instrumentation and things in many different sorts of experiments. So although those, these two pictures that I've showed you look sort of vaguely similar, the sorts of physics that they're doing are actually completely different. Right? The only thing that the, but the thing that they have in common is that the laser has become a commonplace analytical tool in many branches of science, including physics. So this is a rough sort of high-level list of the things that we do now. So, so we do particle physics, and Alan Barr will tell you some more about that in a minute. Uh, we do astrophysics and planetary physics, including things like exoplanets, which of course are a relatively recent, uh, recent discovery. Um, and there was a lecture earlier this afternoon on, on, on astrophysics. Uh, we do plasma physics. So plasmas are interesting things because plasmas vary all the way from sort of astrophysical systems to things that you can create in the laboratory with very high-powered lasers. These days you can produce actual plasmas in the laboratory with high-powered lasers, and there are a number of places around the world that's done and where people from Oxford uh, work regularly. Um, then that's pretty brutal, of course, high-powered lasers. Uh, at the other end, in the, at the delicate end of the spectrum, is quantum optics, uh, quantum computing. Uh, we currently have in this, uh, in this laboratory the most stable iron trap in the world. It's, co it's quantum coherence time is of the order of a couple of minutes. And uh, so this is the sort of underlying technology which would be well, one branch of underlying technology which would be useful uh, for building a real quantum computer if you could build it stable enough and cheap enough and all the usual problems. Uh, you know, these, the gear at the moment occupies a whole lab um, and that's for one or two iron traps. Uh, you need large numbers of these things to make a real machine. So obviously it's not practical at the moment at a genuine technological level. It's still something which is in the regime of fundamental science. Something which is completely new is biological physics. So uh, there, there we, we moved into to that area about 10 or 12 years ago. Um, and uh, I'll tell you a little bit more about, about that in a minute. Uh, it, it's basically the, 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 the application of physics to biological problems. Um, and you might think, well, you know, why isn't that a biology? Uh, but actually it's physics because it uses the methods of physics and it uses the methodology of physics and it uses the physicist's way of thinking about things. Uh, and, and, uh, all sorts of very interesting and amazing things have come out of that, including the, the nanomotors, which many of you have probably had a, had a look at. So that's a classic example of, of, of biological physics. Um, we have a very large effort in climate science these days. So the atmospheric physics group has been around for a long time, but it was been, until recent times it's been very, very small. Now it's a very big group. Um, and basically what we're doing is we're doing the fundamental science of the climate problem. And it extends, of course, not just beyond atmospheric physics, also to the oceans and how the oceans and the atmosphere are coupled and, 
and so on. So we have a large group of people now doing that. Soft materials, I'll leave that to, to Henry to explain to you a, an example of what that means. Um, quantum materials, um, I'll talk a little bit about that in a minute, but these, these, these are materials whose properties depend intrinsically on the quantum mechanical nature of what's going on, on in them. And in all of these areas, of course, what we, you know, we do experiment, we do observation, we do theory. So that part of it's not changed. We, we have always done experiment, observation, and theory. But the things that we're doing it on have evolved. It, you know, Oxford sometimes seems like it never changes, but actually it does. Right? And actually, if you look at the physics department, it's changed very substantially over the last 20 years. There are a lot of things that were done 20 years ago uh, that we don't do now. We're basically a fundamental science department. That's where our efforts are, are, are concentrated. But these days, we're very alert to the practical implications of everything we do. And we have full-time members of staff whose responsibility is to recognize the link between whatever is done in the lab and whatever is useful in the outside world. So we take this extremely seriously these days. OK, so I just want to talk a little bit about a couple of bits of of uh, science, which are different from the ones that, that Henry and Alan are going to talk about. Okay, so the first one is DNA by AFM. What does this mean? Well, AFM is a thing called an atomic force microscope. So this is a very good example of uh, one of the revolution in instrumentation which has taken place over the last 20 or 30 years. Basically, an AFM um, is a tiny whisker, think of my finger as the whisker, on a long cantilever arm, with a lot, lots of electronics to monitor the motion of the cantilever arm and a very skilled operator to, to, move up, to operate the whole thing. Uh, and what you do is you, you drag this little whisker across the surface of something. And the, the point of the whisker is so fine that it will pick up uh, change, changes on a more or less atomic scale. Okay, bit, bit bigger, but more or less. And, and, and so what you actually get with the cantilever arm, of course, is a magnification of the movements of the little whisker. So as you drag this thing across the surface, you can, it will move up and down. The cantilever arm will magnify it. The box of tricks will turn it into an electrical signal, which you can then record, of course. And by doing this, you can map out the topography of a surface. And originally, that's what AFMs were used for. They were, they were used for relatively flat surfaces, which are relatively easy things to deal with. But these days, the people who do it have got so clever that, they can actually, that this can actually be done on big molecules which are, are in a fluid. Okay? And this is a picture, of, which was uh, made by somebody in this department, Sonia Antaranz-Contera, actually of a DNA molecule. Okay? And the way you, historically, the structure of DNA, of course, was discovered by doing X-ray crystallography, right, which involves, you know, obviously involves X-rays, but it also involves Fourier transforms in inverting the diffraction pattern in order to reconstruct the physical configuration of the molecule. The great thing about the AFM picture is that this is a direct mechanical picture of a DNA molecule. Okay? And you can actually see uh, on the, it's a bit fuzzy, I'm afraid, but on the left-hand side where the box is, is blown up a bit, you can actually see the helix structure. And this is a direct mechanical image. So, of course, this enables you to do all sorts of things that you couldn't do before. It's a fantastic advance in instrumentation. Uh, if you never believed all this stuff about X-rays and Fourier transforms and junk like that, 
You don't have to anymore. All right? You can take a direct mechanical picture of a DNA molecule, which I think is pretty fantastic. Okay. So, so that's one, one thing which is, which is a, a, a great advance and which is now used for all sorts of, all sorts of things. Okay. The second thing I want to talk about very quickly is something called a topological insulator. So <coughs> it, you may remember, of course you may not, um, what the difference is between you know, metals and semiconductors and insulators. It, it, it basically has to do with the band structure and whether there are electrons which are free to move in the solid. If it's a conductor like a metal, then the electrons are free to move in the, in the metal. So if you put a battery across it, apply a potential difference, then the current will flow. Okay? If the band structure is such that there aren't any free electrons, um, then when you put a battery across this solid, nothing will happen. That's an insulator. And then semiconductors are the interesting ones in the middle, where by tweaking them just a little bit, you can make, move electrons from the conduction into the conduction band from the lower, lower bands. Now, all of these materials have this characteristic that when, when the current flows or not doesn't flow, what you're talking about is current flowing through the bulk. Right? So if you have an electrical wire and you connect it to a car battery, right, then, of course, a large amount of current flows down it, and that current flows through the bulk of the wire. And in fact, of course, you know, it heats it very fast and it melts it, and many of us saw that in school, never mind university. Okay. Now, it's recently discovered in, been discovered in the last decade, there's actually another way of doing this. You can have a material which is an insulator in the bulk. Right? So it won't conduct electrons through the bulk of the material. But there are modes which live on the surface of the material which are conducting. And that's what a topological insulator is. So a topological insulator is a material which only conducts electricity on the surface of the sample. Okay. Now, this, this has many potential ramifications because, uh, of course, uh, if, you could, if you can do that, you can cope with very small amounts, you can manage very small amounts of current, you can have very low levels of heating, the bulk of the sample could be the cooling, it's part of the system and so on. So there are all kinds of possibilities for electrical devices, sort of, you know, transistor and diode-like devices made using these things. But at the moment, we're still at the, the level of basically understanding in a simple way what they are. Okay, so this is an example of one. They're somewhat exotic materials. Okay, so, so an example which has been investigated here is this thing, bismuth telluride, Bi2Te3, right? And on the top left-hand corner, you can see uh, this, is, this is what the crystal structure is. Okay, so you have to look at this carefully and figure out what the periodicity is. It's obviously complicated. Okay? It's got a nasty, complicated crystal structure. It's not one of these nice, simple things that we all learned about um, you know, in sort of, you know, school and universities or face centre cubic or body centre cubic or something like that. It's got a complicated structure which is actually twisted. Okay? But the structure is known. The, the black dots, obviously, are the bismuth. And there are two sorts of sites for the tellurium atoms. Uh, and if you look very carefully, you can pick up what the periodicity is in this cell. But it is complicated. Okay. Now, the important thing about the topological insulators is that this topological insulator property depends upon a symmetry. Um, but a, a pure topological insulator is not much use. It's like semiconductors. You need to dope it. You need to put other atoms in there, which you can use, for example, to hold information. And so the, the, picture, the picture at the bottom is a picture of the response of a topological insulator, this one, bismuth telluride, which has been doped with iron atoms. And the crucial thing is that you've got to be able to dope it 
without destroying the topological insulator properties. Okay? If you destroy that property, then you lose the conduction modes on the surface and it won't work. So uh, this is, uh, you, there are many things that you have to check. Uh, and this one at the bottom is the simplest. It's the magnetization vertical along the vertical axis and the field along the horizontal axis. And you can probably, you've, probably, you've seen this picture before, maybe a long time ago, right? But what this shows you is that, the, that when the field is zero in the middle, the magnetization is zero. And when you apply a magnetic field, it doesn't matter which direction it, you apply it in, the thing magnetizes, but in a sort of completely asymmetric way. Okay? There's no gap in the middle. And this shows you that there's no net magnetization, there's no spontaneous magnetization of the ion atoms on this surface, and so the symmetry is maintained. So this is actually a viable topological insulator. Okay. So this is just a completely different example, something which is a completely reliant on quantum phenomena. It's completely new. It's something which is fundamental, still in the regime of fundamental physics. It's very promising for all sorts of reasons for possible applications for devices, but it'll be quite a long time yet before these devices, you know, can be found in your mobile phone or something like that, right? So that, 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 those are just a couple of uh, very brief, very brief uh, pieces of physics which I think are, are, are interesting and new. And now I'm going to pass you across to Alan, who is going to talk about... The Large Hadron Collider. The Large Hadron Collider. Right, I'm on here. You're on there. So that probably just means I need to press that. If you just press that. You want that one? Yep. And I have to mute this one. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, I'm Alan Barr. Uh, I lecture here on subatomic physics, and I tutor at Merton College. And I also spend a good bit of my time uh, in Geneva uh, since my research is uh, focused on uh, the smallest particles, uh, the fundamental constituents of the universe, and trying to understand them. And uh, this is something that Oxford is uh, playing a very major role in and has been for some time. Uh, I've entitled the lecture Seeing the Invisible. I realize that we are talking about 21st century physics, but I, I couldn't help but think back that this has been going on in Oxford for quite a long time. Uh, this being an alumni day, uh, I thought I'd remind myself that, uh, that Robert Hooke was an alumnus uh, of Oxford back in the 17th century rather than the 21st century, and uh, he was really the, the, the leader in this field. He was the first person who, to, uh, to look down a microscope and make pictures of what he discovered, uh, this uh, micrographia was one of the, the first documents produced by the Royal Society and it was really the first good popular science book of its day. And, and I highlight this not just because uh, he was an alumnus of this place as are, are you folks, but because I, I like his attitude to science, I must admit. He says, the truth is the science of nature has already been too long made only a, a work of the brain and the fancy. It is now high time that it should return to the plainness and soundness of observations on material and obvious things. He had none of, no time for this highfalutin theory. He wanted to see what stuff was actually made of. And uh, you could argue that uh, 
that parts of physics uh, towards the end of the 20th century were in a rather similar state. There was lots of theory going on and not much observation. Uh, what, what Hooke was using was an apparatus that looked a bit like this. On the right is his diagram, on the left is a reconstruction. And I highlight this because uh, this microscope is, is, it has of course the same principles for what we use today in particle physics. Uh, so you have uh, a lens which is focusing some, some uh, projectile on a target, and then you've got a detector. And here's the microscope and here the detector is your eye. In particle physics today, we have the same thing. We're firing, uh, we're firing high energy objects at a projectile, uh, and then we're scattering them off, and then we're measuring what comes off. Um, our apparatus looks a little bit different, but the principles are exactly the same. And Hooke led us on this voyage that started off with uh, cells and then magnified and magnified and magnified with more and more technology coming in each, at each point until these days we can see objects which are a thousand times smaller than a proton, which I think is pretty impressive. Now, health warning, you don't need to understand the equations on this mug but it is a wonderful thing that the theory of the subatomic world can be encapsulated on your coffee cup. Uh, and those of you who can remember back may, may remember the, uh, the covariant form of Maxwell's equations, which is what's up the top here. Underneath them is a little bit of Dirac. Uh, and then underneath that again, you can see uh, what is the last part of what's the standard model, which is the, the, the theory of the subatomic world. And you needn't understand everything that's going on here. Some of you may, some of you may not. But it's worth pointing out that this symbol phi appears several times in here. And this symbol phi is what's giving mass to all of the fundamental particles. This is the Higgs field. And without this Higgs field, none of the other particles, neither the bosons nor the fermions, would have any mass. And, uh, and the world would not work the way we do the way we see it, but this theory is all very well and good, but like Robert Hooke, I think we should think to ourselves, is this the truth or is this just some highfalutin theory that may not bear any resemblance to reality? What we want to do is get some observations and some tests of this theory. And the theory predicts that if you thwap this field, this field you will excite it and you will be able to make particles travel along through it. And the excitations of this field are the Higgs boson. The theory predicts that this new particle should exist, that it should be heavy, that if you smash particles together, you should produce it rarely, and that it will decay rapidly to known final states. So that's good. That's uh, some concrete predictions that you can then go away and test. Uh, but like Hook, we will need some, uh, some apparatus to do that testing. And as I say, our apparatus looks a little bit different from his. Because these particles are heavy, we will need to collide them, collide particles at very high energy because, of course, E equals mc squared. We need high energy to make heavy particles. Because these particles will be produced rarely, we'll need an awful lot of collisions to find this new, uh, this new particle. And we'll, be have, we'll, have to, uh, we'll have to measure all of the decay products that come out in order to, to, to work out whether these uh, predictions are being uh, accurately represented in nature or not. Well, this is, this is the apparatus. Uh, Chris Llewellyn Smith, who uh, some of you may know, uh, likes to tell a story that uh, he had one major design input into this machine, which is that uh, he got to choose the colour of the magnets, and they are Oxford blue for a reason. Uh, so uh, obviously our, our accelerator uh, is a little bit bigger than Robert Hooke's, uh, but what you, can, what you can see here are right in the middle 
are the places where two counter-rotating beams of protons uh, travel through this, it's a 27 kilometer long tunnel, uh, living underneath the ground in Geneva, uh, and working with superconducting magnets to bend those beams around. And at four places on, in that tunnel, they collide, uh, producing very high energy collisions, uh, up to 14 tera electron volts worth of collisions. If you think a tera electron volt, a tera volt is a big voltage, right? So if you had a, a tera volt Van de Graaff and you put your hand on it, you could zap someone on the other side of the planet. Right? It's, it's, it's a big voltage. And of course, these particles get uh, up to these very high voltages by traversing this field many times. Uh, we played many roles locally uh, in producing the apparatus for this machine. And we've produced several components. Uh, one of them is this. Uh, this is Roy and his robot uh, producing the semiconductor tracker for the Atlas experiment. We produced four of these layers. Um, Roy is on the right. The robot is the one in the middle. Um, and this, this is one of four layers that were assembled here in the, in the basement of the Dennis Wilkinson building uh, from about 2004 to 2005, and then shipped out to CERN, where they play a central role in detecting the particles that come out from the high-energy collisions in the ATLAS experiment. We also contributed several pieces of kit to one of the other experiments, the LHCB experiment at CERN. This is what it looks like when you blow it up. Each one of these uh, silicon wafers is about six centimeters by six centimeters. Uh, in essence, it's a 40 megapixel camera, um, which, uh, sorry, it was six, six uh, megapixel camera, so it's six million channels, which uh, doesn't sound that impressive whenever you know you've got a megapixel camera in your pocket, but this is a, a six megapixel camera that can take 40 million snaps per second, which your camera phone certainly can't. Uh, it's got 20 micron resolution, uh, and what's more, if I get rid of this little thing, we'll see that it has to live, it has to operate for 10 years underneath the ground in remote access, uh, not touched by any human hand, in a high radiation environment with high magnetic fields. So it has to work and it has to keep working. It would be terribly embarrassing if this thing didn't work. Fortunately, more than 99.9% .9 of the channels, of the electronics channels, are working and it's been a wonderful success. In fact, it's great. Uh, uh, it's a great success for Oxford Physics that we were able to play our role in putting the, this really uh, high technology piece of kit together. What you can see with one of these is this. So this is a representation of one of the early collisions from the Large Hadron Collider on the picture on the left. The beams of protons are coming in from either side. They're colliding at several places and you can see the dots in the layers and these dots are places where charged particles have passed through uh, some of these uh, silicon layers, and they've, let, they've created electron hole pairs. They've created charge carriers inside that semiconductor, and you play a game of join the dots, or rather the computer plays the game of join the dots at 40 million times a second, reconstructs these tracks, uh, and tries to work out uh, what's going on inside these collisions. And here you can see um, a, a, a period where two of these bunches have crossed, and here you can count up to, I think, one, two, three, four different individual proton-proton collisions going on there. It was really rather nice to find out that our particle detector that we'd spent a decade building did actually detect particles, I must admit. There were lots of smiles and lots of cheers, but uh, it was never trivial that it was going to work. What, what became interesting, of course, towards the start of this year was whether the question as to whether or not we were seeing this new type of particle, this Higgs boson that had been predicted. 
This is one of several things that we want to do with this machine, but it's clearly one of the highest profile because it's one of the most uh, robust predictions of the standard model. And what you can see in this picture uh, are two uh, energy deposits. This is a, a, a cross-section through the Atlas detector, and each of these yellow areas here is an energy deposit that corresponds to a photon. And we can tell that they're photons because there are energy deposits with no tracks pointing towards them. And photons being electrically neutral do not create electron hole pairs in the silicon layers, and so there is no track pointing towards them. Nevertheless, there is this energy deposit. So we have these collision events producing two photons, and that, in fact, is one of the characteristic ways in which a Higgs boson might decay. And there was a small excess of such events, such collisions, so the question arose as to whether these, this small excess was actually caused by Higgs bosons decaying. Now, how do you work out whether that's true or not? Well, if you have a Higgs boson and it decays to two particles, then the energy of that Higgs boson, which is encapsulated in its mass, will be transferred into the energy of the two photons. And if you can remember back to your first year relativity course, if you, uh, if you were doing one at the time, we certainly do one now, then you, fat, you add up the Lorentz vectors for those two uh, photons, and you square that thing up. You find what's called the invariant mass of that photon pair, and if you plot the distribution of that, then you should find a very special energy, or a special mass, which is the energy of this new particle. And this is what was done. This is the data that were taken up to, uh, in, up to July this year. And you can see a bump in this distribution. It's not an enormous bump, but you can see that there are lots of two-photon events where the invariant mass of the two-photon pair ranges anywhere from 100 up to 160 giga electron volts and beyond. But there's one special area in which there's this excess, and this excess is coming from a small number of events, a handful, in which the, you've produced in this very violent high-energy collision a Higgs boson, and it's decayed to a pair of photons, leave, leaving extra events there. Now, this is wonderful. It was calculated that the probability of a background fluctuation, uh, statistical probability of a background fluctuation causing this bump was about two in a billion or so. So that's good enough for us to claim a discovery. Um, so we, off we do, we go and we do claim our discovery and, um, and lots of people talk about it. In fact, it made the front pages of nearly all of the, uh, the, the good papers around the world, um, though seemingly despite the fact that the British press has gone very prurient these days, um, the Sun newspaper <laughs> chose to highlight uh, this delightful young lady's antics instead, uh, seemingly. Okay, but, but despite having found something interesting and exciting, uh, and this being you know, a really great achievement already in the very early days of the Large Hadron Collider, there is an awful lot still to be found. Uh, we find a particle, but we don't know exactly what sort of a particle it is. We are not sure yet where, whether it is the or even a Higgs boson. There are plenty of alternative theories which predict more than one Higgs boson. And so we do need to go away and measure its properties in detail in order to work out whether this was the particle uh, predicted by Peter Higgs and others. Simultaneously, we can use these same high-energy collisions to probe many other questions. And uh, Oxford graduate students are actively working on each of the different questions that you can see here. Um, 
the, the question as to why the world is made out of matter rather than antimatter is not yet addressed in completeness. Uh, and in fact, we had some interesting results uh, from an Oxford-led analysis on the LHCB experiment earlier on this year, which may hint at the answer to that question. We're also looking for evidence of production of dark matter particles, WIMPs, if you like, the things that the astronomers tell us are making up the majority of the content of the universe, but which we've never been able to produce in the laboratory up until now. So we're looking for evidence of those. And uh, like John said at the beginning, we're always keeping our eye open to anything else that might be out there, because no matter what uh, your, your wonderful theorist friend might tell you, he might actually be wrong. So the next steps uh, for what we are trying to do in the particle physics laboratory uh, is that we are, of course, uh, playing our continuing role in the ATLAS and the LHCB experiments. Our graduate students, our postdocs and others are central to the operation of those experiments out at CERN. Uh, and they've typically go on uh, an attachment there for a year during their PhD. And so we're continuing uh, to, to run and operate those experiments. But at the same time, we're looking to the future. Uh, and in particular, having had this great success in building this semiconductor tracker, the silicon tracker for the Atlas experiment, uh, we are about to replace it. The reason being, it's going to die. It's going to die of radiation sickness uh, because it's being zapped by particles all the time. And in order to take advantage of the larger collision rate from the, uh, the Large Hadron Collider that we expect in the next 10 years, we need one that is 10 times better. Of course, this is always what happens. You build something, you pat yourself on the back, you think you've done very well, and someone says, very good, can you do it 10 times better? And that's what we're up to at the moment. We're trying to build one that has got 10 times better uh, 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 granularity to deal with this 10 times higher occupancy and can survive 10 times uh, higher radiation as well. And so prototypes, this picture is a prototype of exactly such a detector that's being built in the laboratory uh, at the moment. We're doing the analysis and we're also trying to develop new technologies that will uh, push us beyond current capabilities. The reason being that you can't keep on building bigger and bigger and bigger accelerators forever. Uh, people may, may take exception to this. And so what we're trying to do is, of course, be smarter and work out how to do more physics uh, within the, the same budget as we have at the moment. So that was a, a bit of a fly through what we've been doing in that part of the, uh, part of the, the uh, department at the moment. But uh, in summary, the LHC, the Large Hadron Collider at CERN, which we are a central part of, has already been extremely successful uh, in exploring the micro world and discovering one very interesting new particle uh, and hopefully more in the future. We've played a very key role in the construction, uh, the design and the operation of this right from its conception until today and intend to do so in the future. And in terms of what we may find in the future, there's an awful lot of terra incognita out there. Uh, there are many predictions, but like Robert Hooke, I don't think I would uh, take anyone's word for what we're going to find in the next few years. Okay, there I rest.